0: Talks from the National Archives. This talk, presented by Dermot McCulloch,
1: is called The Rise and Fall of Thomas Cromwell. It was recorded on Thursday, the 27th of February, 2020, at the National Archives, queue
0: Good evening, everybody. My name's... Jeff James, I'm the Chief Executive and Keeper of the National Archives. It's my absolute pleasure to welcome you all here this evening, not least given uh, winter seems to have finally arrived, at least in some places. I'm absolutely delighted to introduce Dermot McCulloch to present his talk this evening, The Rise and Fall of Thomas Cromwell. Dermot is Emeritus Professor of the History of the Church at the University of Oxford and a Fellow at St Cross College. He's written extensively on the 16th century and beyond. Dermot's book, The History of Christianity, the First 3,000 Years, was made into a BBC TV series and won the Kundal Prize in 2010. (coughs) He has since presented other TV series exploring the history of the church. In 2009, he was awarded the Leopold Lucas Prize, which honours outstanding achievements in the fields of theology, intellectual history, historical research and philosophy. And it goes to individuals who have promoted tolerance, And better relations between people and nations. Dermot was knighted in the New Year's Honours list of 2012 and we're especially thrilled that he's agreed to be one of the founding trustees of the National Archives Trust. Tonight we welcome him to talk about his recent biography of Thomas Cromwell, a self-made statesman who married his son to King Henry VIII's sister-in-law reshaped Tudor England and Ireland and set the kingdom on a Protestant course for centuries. Dermot will look at the myths that have developed around Cromwell and will discuss the personal, political and religious motivations behind his meteoric career. So perhaps you'll uh, do the traditional thing and join me in welcoming Dermot to the stand. Thank you. you. <clears throat>
1: Thanks Geoff for that very in- generous introduction. Uh, so what I want to do is to, uh, on the basis of the, the, what I put in the biography, to try and create a new picture of Thomas Cromwell. We all have a bit of knowledge about Thomas Cromwell in this room, I'm sure, but let's all get up to speed a bit with what you might call the uh, traditional picture. He was Henry VIII's servant, faithful servant, or lackey, if you prefer. He was involved in many judicial murders before being judicially murdered himself in 1540. And uh, we, you probably remember that he's associated with the dissolution of the monasteries. We're getting more and more complex, but I think we've probably all got that. You may remember that at the turn of the twentieth, 19th and 20th century, Miss Marie Lloyd sang that she was one of the ruins that Cromwell knocked about a bit. Not certain as to whether Miss Lloyd meant Thomas or his collateral descendant Oliver both of whom knocked a few ruins about in their time. But Thomas's ruins were mostly monasteries, so let's keep that in mind. Delving down a bit further, we might associate him with some names, contemporary names, Thomas Cranmer, Archbishop of Canterbury, and Boleyn, second queen of Henry VIII, and these three in particular have been associated together because they're all symbols of the Protestant Reformation. And so they've been very much seen as a team. Going down a bit further, I think uh, many of us here are of a certain age. And if we were at school or at university, we might have been subjected to an essay on the Tudor revolution in government. Anyone remember that one? Uh, The point was that my old doctoral supervisor, Sir Geoffrey Elton, wrote a book called The Tudor Revolution in Government, which put Thomas Cromwell as the hero of a revolution which is probably the most boring revolution in history. (laughs) because it was about turning Tudor government from personal government towards bureaucratic government. Uh, And there were many revolutionary things that Thomas Cromwell did but that wasn't the most interesting, but uh, Sir Geoffrey was terrifying and I wouldn't have said that to him at the time. (laughs) Uh, some of the other revolutions, the fact he integrated Wales into the Kingdom of England, gave it the same sort of government, uh, is revolutionary. Uh, an attempted, unsuccessful effort to do the same in Ireland, but not his fault it didn't work. And the Great Revolution of the Protestant Reformation. So all those are part of what you might call the traditional picture of Thomas Cromwell. Here also is a very Traditional picture. So much of Thomas Cromwell's image has come from this Holbein image, which, as you see, is not exactly flattering. It is uh, a pudgy cheeked civil servant within a minute of losing his temper. And uh, some of you may have seen this picture. Uh, It's in New York, it's in the Frick Gallery, and it's in a room. Uh, on one side of a fireplace with on the other side of the fireplace another Holbein of another great Tudor statesman, Sir Thomas More, looking all noble and thoughtful and a bit as if he's going to be martyred. (laughs) And it is not a flattering comparison. You're setting up these two pictures side by side, definitely favours Sir Thomas More. But the interesting thing about these two pictures, Uh, a lot of uh, research, detailed research and spectrography is being done on them both now. And it's quite clear that the Moore portrait was much altered while it was being painted, as if. Sir Thomas Moore wandered into the atelier of Hans Holbein and said, Well, Herr Holbein, it's going all right, but I I don't think I look quite noble and thoughtful enough yet. Can I be a bit more martyry, do you think? (laughs) Whereas this portrait was not altered at all while it was being painted. Moreover, it went on to hang in Thomas Cromwell's own house at the Austin Friars, we know that, by the succession of people who owned it afterwards. In his own parlour, perhaps. Now that strikes me as interesting and begins saying something more about the conventional portrait. As if uh, Thomas Cromwell looked at this and said, yep, that's me. I'll take it and I'll hang it on my wall. Now, I think that's interesting because it suggests to me a man who is comfortable in his own skin, who is not worried about who he is or his self-image. That's got a certain chutzpah about it, I think. And that was reinforced to me when I realized the significance of the peerage title he took when eventually he was given a peerage by Henry VIII after the death of Queen Anne Bullen, more of that anon. Uh, and In that summer, 1536, he was made Baron Cromwell of Wimbledon, resonant local name, uh, with a particular modern resonance, we all know. But there was no te- lawn tennis in those days. But the name would have a resonance because it was the name of a very large and very wealthy manor, uh, of Wimbledon, uh, which belonged to the Archbishop of Canterbury up to that summer, 1536, by, uh, at which point it was taken away from Archbishop Cranmer and given to Thomas Cromwell. Hence, he got a perfectly good uh, legal uh, indication towards being Baron Cromwell of Wimbledon. But everyone would also have known that within that extensive manor spreading down in its wealthy acres to the Thames, was a small hamlet by the waterside called Putney. And that is where Thomas Cromwell had grown up, son of a beer brewer, miller, moneylender, all sorts of things, Walter Cromwell. Everyone would have known, and he took that title obviously quite deliberately and you can see the rushed Brussels, bristling of disapproval as he walked into the House of Lords for the first time as Baron Cromwell of Wimbledon, particularly from the biggest snob in all Tudor England, Thomas Howard, Third Duke of Norfolk. How Norfolk must have bristled at that. And again, chutzpah. He wasn't afraid of telling people where he'd come from. He was the Putney. So I liked all that. I liked this portrait, warts and all. Yeah, famously, his collateral descendant Oliver said to Sir Peter Lely about his portrait, it must be warts and all, as if it was a Cromwell family joke. That then is both a conventional picture and in a sense a new picture. It sets us off on a new road on this man who during most of the 20th century, I think, was seen through uh, the latter half of the 20th century, seen through the eyes of uh, Robert Bolt, Uh, that famous play, uh, A Man for All Seasons. And again, Thomas Cromwell comes off badly against the hero. He's going to, isn't he? But now that has been reversed, not really, I think, thanks to my biography, but thanks to the genius of the novelist Hilary Mantel, whose third volume is coming out next week, something like that. Uh, And I can tell you it's brilliant, because I've read it in typescript. It really does complete that extraordinary trilogy of novels. And suddenly we see uh, uh, a a Cromwell who is not Robert Boltz, and I think really uh, a a, a really convincing Cromwell. Uh, we've, We've talked at length about our two Thomas Cromwells. They're not exactly identical, but they go down the same lines. And you may have seen the way in which that couple of novels now to be a trio, has been uh, so far interpreted on screen and on stage. On stage, uh, did anyone see the Stratford production? Yeah, one or two I think. Uh, you might have even seen it on Broadway, it went that far. But you'll remember that Thomas Cromwell there is Ben Miles. His performance on stage as Thomas Cromwell I found fascinating and exhilarating. He's on stage for everything except five minutes, of that two hour play. When you think sometimes he did a matinee, that is an extraordinary feat of physical endurance. And he, he, he capers around stage, he's a till oil and spiegel on stage, a man wildly improvising things thrown around in politics. That's a very fascinating image of Thomas Cromwell. And then many more of you will remember the television production with Mark Rylance, and how different Thomas Crummel was there in through Mark Rylance, enigmatic, silent, the camera panning across his face. And of course, this is partly genre, isn't it? I mean, Mark Rylance would have looked boring standing in Stratford, just standing there looking enigmatic. You can't do that on stage. Uh, The camera is necessary for that. and Equally, Ben Miles's performance would have looked odd on the TV. But it's not just about genre because both these brilliant actors captured something about Thomas Cromwell. The energy of Ben Miles was Thomas Cromwell's energy. That uh, astounding achievement of nine years of the King's chief minister, improvising, constantly changing, creating revolutions, and that we have his papers, we have thousands on thousands of documents and I spent five years going through them uh, to write the book Uh, and at the end of a day looking through a sequence of his papers I was exhausted and about seven o'clock as I was about to knock off for a glass of wine I thought I am so tired but then I thought he would have been too. This is his day he would have been gone through these papers, listening to their voices, crackling out of them, wheedling, telling jokes, complaining, all the gamut of things that can happen to a statesman who is doing everything. And the energy you need for that. Well, there's Ben Miles. But then the enigma of Mark Rylance. Now, that's also true for a rather odd archival reason. Appropriate to talk about archives in these national archives. Because although the the papers took me five years, uh, because there are thousands on thousands of them, what you realise very quickly when you go through the archive is that it is entirely, virtually entirely composed of the letters coming in. Uh, What we call in in email the inbox, or those of a certain age like me might used to have called the in-tray, on a desk. What is missing is the sent mail, the out tray. It's not there. It would have been, there's no question, it would have been because you have another archive, uh, actually here as well, of Arthur Plantagenet, Lord who uh, who is another great official under Henry VIII, whose papers also were confiscated by the king, just like and there we've got inbox and sent mail side by side and we see there from that structure of the Tudor archive that what you do would be to get your clerk to write the penultimate draft of your letter out you do a few last-minute corrections and you'd say to your clerk right write it out again send it off and keep this last draft file copy that's what's missing. What happened? Well, I can't uh, absolutely tell you what happened, but I strongly suspect that when his household heard he'd been arrested in 1540, they sat up all night burning the outtray, burning the scent mail, on the grounds that this is what would incriminate him. Not what people wrote to him necessarily, you can write that off. So, so I, I didn't know what they were going to write, but what you write. So it was a good try, didn't work because he was executed, but what it has done is create this extraordinary enigma. How do we get inside the mind of a man whose letters have gone, except for uh, in other people's archives, there are about 300 or so letters from Thomas Cromwell in other people's archives, but it's not much compared with those thousands on thousands, I kid you not, of letters sent to him that we have. How do we get past that? Well, we can feel the impress of him through the letters, but there are also tricks. I suppose I've given you tricks already, the portrait, the title. But here's a trick, heraldry. Here you have the arms of Thomas Cromwell beside the arms of someone else, his first major employer in public life, Cardinal Thomas Woolsey. Well, heraldry is great fun. I had huge fun designing my own coat of arms, and, uh, but it is, let's face it, a bit nerdy in the 21st century, but not in the 16th century. In the 16th century, it is the language of power. Heraldry is the language of power, and you need to understand it just as you and I need to understand road signs, and for the same reason, that if we don't understand them, something nasty might happen to us. And these, the two shields, side by side, are telling us something. Don't worry about the the, the way in which they're painted, the detail, that's just because they're from different sources. But the heraldic design, straight away, tells you that these two shields are related, and that the arms which Thomas Cromwell created were based on Wolseys. Look at that top thing, the top bit, it's called a chief in heraldry, the gold bit, on it are the Tudor rose, two birds, and look at the middle of Thomas Cromwell's arms, it's called a fess, that bit when it's down there in the middle, and it's got the same symbols on, this is saying, that I am the man of Woolsey, I am the servant of Woolsey. Uh, why the birds, why the, the rose, the rose is obvious, isn't it, this I am a servant of the king, that is what it's saying in both shields. Uh, the, the, the birds are interesting because the black birds, but they're not blackbirds, they are Cornish chuffs, which in heraldry are also known as Becketts. They are the symbol of Thomas Beckett and therefore of all English Thomases, Thomas Wolsey, Thomas Cromwell. Uh, Ironically, of course, in later years, 1538, Thomas Cromwell would destroy the shrine of Thomas Becket at Canterbury Cathedral. But he didn't know that when in 1532, he matriculated his coat of arms with the College of Heralds. The date's interesting, 1532, because it is two years after the death in disgrace of Cardinal Wolsey. Now Thomas Cromwell was on the way up. He was on the way to being what Wolsey had been. But Wolsey, officially in 1532, was a non-person, a person who had failed the king, who was accused of treason uh, and might well have been executed if he'd not died of grief on the way down to London. So Thomas Cromwell, this rising man, in the time uh, of uh, after the cardinal's death, was saying to the world... I'm the Cardinal's man. I suspect he may have been using these arms during his service to the Cardinal, but he only registered them in 1532. And in doing so, he was liable to annoy certain very important people. One of whom was Thomas Howard the Duke of Norfolk, who was going to be annoyed a bit more in 1536 by the peerage title. But far more interestingly, it was the niece of Thomas Howard, 3rd Duke of Norfolk, a lady called Anne Bullen, who was rising up the scale towards being queen, and she would become queen the following year, 1533. So, this is rather startling that by his heraldry, Thomas Cromwell was reminding everyone of his relationship to Thomas Wolsey, whom Anne had been instrumental in destroying in 1529 to 30. This was a symbol of defiance and independence against Anna and how she must have raged. Now this rather blows apart that easy association which I set up for you earlier between Thomas Cromwell, and Bullen, Thomas Cranmer, who was, in, in fact, cha- chaplain to Anne. So they're, they're closely associated. And it was natural for everyone to suppose that the third Protestant hero would also be associated very closely. And that assumption goes right back to the 16th century. It goes back to the 1560s, and you will find it implicit in the great account of the Reformation by Fo- John Fox in Fox's Book of Martyrs, Acts and Monuments. So very early, people are trying to forget the inconvenience of the fact that this alone, uh, and uh, bolstered by much other evidence as I looked at it, shows that Anne and Thomas Cromwell loathed each other. They detested each other because he was the Cardinal's man and she had destroyed the Cardinal. Now, once you spot this, it makes sense of events between 1533 and 1536, because in the end, as you all know, Anne Boleyn was destroyed on absurd charges of incest and treason. You can go and have a look at the documents associated with her trial. And it's, it's been quite clear since the beginning that Thomas Cromwell engineered that fall, and historians are puzzled about that. How can it be that these allies have, have just fell out like that? Well, they weren't allies. He was serving the king, which meant getting Anne to be queen, but it was not for her. And during her reign, as people called it at the time, 1533 to 36, he got no honours whatsoever, not even a knighthood. After her death, instantly he is Baron Cromwell of Wimbledon as well as a knighthood attached to that. He goes up the scale, he is Lord Privy Seal, dot, 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 dot. She had been an obstacle to his rise not a help, and there is another great lady at court, which is a sort of corollary of this relationship. The other great lady at court in her time was the Lady Mary, Princess Mary, daughter of queen number one, Catherine of Aragon. And uh, as I analyzed the fall of Anne Boleyn, it became quite clear that Thomas Cromwell and the Lady Mary were working together with the aim of making the Lady Mary heir presumptive to the throne, and that is exactly what happened in summer 1536. She was now heir presumptive. It took a lot of painful persuasion of her to deny her mother's marriage. It was a bitter pill to swallow, but she was heir presumptive from then on, and it was Thomas Cromwell who had got her there, and that relationship lasted. So much so that on the 14th of February, 1537, there is an entry in Thomas Cromwell's personal accounts for 20 gold crowns to be given to my lady for my lord's valentine. Think of that, the pudgy-faced civil servant being valentine to the 19-year-old Princess Mary. More uncle and niece, I think, and uh, an affectionate relationship, however, And that went on because in the following year, the Lady Mary stood godmother to his first grandchild. And isn't this surprising? Because we, with our hindsight, know what the Lady Mary went on to become. Queen Mary Tudor, Bloody Mary in Protestant mythology, the woman who burned Protestants at the stake. But 1530s, she's a late teenager, early 20s. She's not the person she was later. And clearly this relationship worked. Who knows how it might have developed if Thomas Cromwell had not been executed in 1540. So all that is different. And other things become different once you begin sort of pushing on the career, just probing it a bit. To begin with, the, the very odd fact about it is how late it started. We're not quite sure where Thomas, when Thomas Cromwell was born, it's somewhere around 1485 and he entered the service of Cardinal Wolsey in 1524. In other words, he's about 39 or 40 before he has any public career at all, uh, an age at which many Tudor men were dying. But now he he suddenly emerges. Why did Cardinal Wolsey take this utterly obscure merchant, moneylender, member of the Merchant-Tailors' Guild, and put uh, this particular jobbing lawyer, moneylender, into his service? What was it about Thomas Wolsey? Well, again, if you push the biography back, you see the most extraordinary thing, the most distinct, distinctive thing about his career, in his late teens, he left Putney. Well, most imaginative teenagers would. <laughs> then and now, perhaps. <laughs> but most ordinarily imaginative teenagers would have simply gone four miles downriver to the city of London, the city of London, there, just down the Thames. But not Thomas Cromwell. He did go there, but that was to get a ship to go to Calais, and then France, and then Italy. He went to Italy. He went to Florence, he went to Venice, he went to every big city you can think of. In other words, he left the periphery, not uh, of Europe. If Putney was uh, a no account place near London, well England was a no account place near Europe. And Italy was at the centre of it. The great cities, the greatest cities of uh, the known world for him would have been Florence and Venice. And he went there. And he stayed years and years and years from his late teens to his early 20s and came back mysteriously well educated. We know nothing of his education. But he came back speaking Latin, the language of the powerful, French, bit of German, bit of Spanish, and most particularly fluent Italian, absolutely fluent Italian, and for the rest of his life he went on reading Italian books, got Italian friends. He was, in other words, the best Italian in all Tudor England, and that is what Wolsey wanted in 1524. Why? because Woolsey had decided this was the time that he must produce a legacy for the next life, a tomb for himself. And it must be, it being Cardinal Woolsey, the best and most expensive tomb you could possibly have. And what is the competition in really ultra-luxurious tombs at the time? It's a tomb which many of you will know because it is the tomb of King Henry the Seventh in Westminster Abbey, in the Henry VII Chapel at the East End. That had just been completed about 10 years before, and it was by Italian craftsmen a, a, from Florence, Pietro Torrigiano. Well, Torrigiano had left England, but there were still Italians, Benedetto de Rovezzano, another Florentine, and now de Rovizzano would be put to work to create the most magnificent tomb to outdo King Henry VII for the cardinal. That's what Thomas Cromwell's job was. It was to negotiate with the Italian sculptors and artists working on this tomb. You can imagine the scene. The cardinal wakes up at two in the morning, as we all do, brooding. And he decides he doesn't like his nose on the tomb, on the sculpture. And the following morning he sends off Signor Cromwello to see Signor Vizzano. And Cromwell walks into the atelier in Westminster and says, Oh, Signor Novozano, what a lovely day. Uh, the cardinal is in very good form and he loves what you're doing with the tomb. It's absolutely splendid. But I wonder about the nose? Do you think we could just alter the nose a bit, just a little tweak? You know? And all done, all sorted, and back to the cardinal. Yes, Your Grace, it's all sorted. That's the sort of function which he was doing from 1524 to 1529 or 30. And we have the letters from Robert Sano to show it. Signor Cromwello has been so good all through this process. A remarkable way in to a public career. And not just the tomb, because the tomb would have to be surrounded by prayer. You need prayers to waft your soul as quickly as possible through purgatory towards the next towards heaven in the next life. And a factory of prayer must go up around the tomb. And you need priests for prayer because the highest form of prayer is the mass. And you need a priest to say the mass. You need lots of priests to say lots of masses all that time around the tomb. And a lots of priests in Latin, the word for lots of in Latin, is collegium a collegium of priests must be set up for the tomb, a college. In fact, two colleges, uh, one in Wolsey's birthplace in Ipswich in Suffolk and the other in Wolsey's own university, Oxford, and these would both be cardinal college. And this is again modelled on what a king had done. Uh, Another King Henry, not the seventh but the sixth, who had set up for his uh, Chantry, as they're called, college, his Chantry colleges, Eton College and King's College, Cambridge. You will know the chapel of King's College, Cambridge. Uh, well, Woolsey's guess what was going to be bigger and better at Cardinal College, Oxford, and Cardinal College, Ipswich, was not going to be ma- less magnificent. Now, that would cost a lot of money. Even for the cardinal legate in England, where would all his money come from, even from all his diocese and things? Well, there was one obvious thing. He was the cardinal legate. He was the pope's representative, charged with reforming the English church. What better than to reform certain monasteries, which were no longer fulfilling much need? Why not dissolve them and give their money to the project of founding colleges? And so Cromwell was put on that. He was put to work to dissolve colleges for the cardinal for this great task. That's how he learned to dissolve monasteries. And that's what he was doing all the way up to the cardinal's fall in 1529. Well, the story I've told you is a bit odd, isn't it? Because here is the hero of the Reformation doing lots of Catholic things. He loves the cardinal. He hates Anne Boleyn. Catalyst for the English Reformation. He's good mates with Mary Tudor. All this business of setting up chantry colleges for the Cardinal. But in the middle of it all, if you look at the papers which survived from the 1520s in the Cardinal service, what you realise is that he's doing something else for himself at the same time. Or not exactly for himself, but for a personal agenda for a Protestant Reformation. Not yet possible to call it that, but there are people around, reformers whom the king and the cardinal regarded as heretics, who were pressing towards what was happening in mainland Europe through Martin Luther or Ulrich Zwingli in uh, Zurich. And these people were mates, friends of Cromwell, and he was promoting them through the cardinal's colleges. The, The first staff of Cardinal College Oxford were all Cambridge men all imported from the other university, young men, very bright uh, stars, and that's how they presented the Cardinal. The trouble was that virtually all of them, to the Cardinal's horror and the horror of Oxford, they all turned out to be evangelicals, Protestants, heretics. Who had done this? Well, the man who knew Cambridge University very well, Thomas Cromwell, he had used the Cardinal's college to promote the interests of those who, like himself, were interested in really quite radical reform, which might actually change the church radically. He may have felt that that's what the cardinal would do in the end, but it's really his own agenda. And there are other little straws in the wind. He was a patron to people who were quite identifiable as Lollards, if you know what that means. Dissenters, heretics from the the medieval period, who before Luther has ever heard of, had been Rebel, rebelling against the old church within England, their mates, their, their clients of Cromwell. So all that came into the service of the king in 1529-30. The, the cardinal's servant transferred, still loyal to the cardinal, Well, many others of the cardinal's servants weren't, but now doing actually exactly the same thing for the king. Because Henry VIII, being Henry VIII, when his chief minister plunged into disaster and disgrace, decided he would pinch the tomb for himself. It would now be the king's tomb. He would get rid of all the cardinally bits, but that left quite a lot. And now, Sano was employed by the king to build the best tomb in the whole of England. And who better than the man who'd been negotiating with him? And all those monasteries, what would happen to them? The colleges, they were confiscated. Uh, One survived, Cardinal College Oxford, became what is now Christ Church in Oxford. And the man who may have saved it was Cromwell and certainly saved a school in Ipswich to replace Cardinal College. He was now negotiating with all those lands, confiscated from monasteries, for the king. And that was the basis of his ever-expanding capabilities under the king. It started by being what I call in my book, but it wasn't a title at the time, Secretary for Woolsey-Related Affairs. (laughs) Sorting out the fall of the cardinal. Well, time presses, and I can't say everything I want to about Cromwell, but I will give you one or two clues about what I think motivated his extraordinary time under the king. What would he want? What did he want? Well, one thing he did want was reformation, and he pushed Henry, who was not in any sense a Protestant, towards what was happening in mainland Europe. And just as he'd subverted, in inverted commas, the cardinal's colleges, he pushed the king in directions the king would not have thought of, particularly that essential Protestant task of providing the Kingdom of England with a Bible in English. The English church had forbidden any translation of the Bible. Now, the the men of the Reformation, the women of the Reformation, must have a Bible. The, The king was not enthusiastic, but Cromwell worked on him. And in the end, an official Bible was issued in 1539, 1537, 38, 39, successive editions of a Bible in English. A triumph. And the most extraordinary thing about this translation was that much of it, most of it had been done by the genius of Protestant Bible translation, William Tyndall, who had actually been murdered, judicially murdered, by the Holy Roman Emperor, with the connivance of Henry the who hated him and regarded him as a heretic. And now the Bible which Tyndall had created was the King's Bible. I wonder if he ever noticed. (laughs) Certainly Cromwell did not tell him. That's the way in which Cromwell used the very, very considerable powers which Henry gave him in the church. And of course, the monasteries went on being dissolved. A complicated story, but not enough time to think about that. One motive then was religion. The other, and hugely important for Cromwell as much as his master, was dynasty. This boy, Gregory Cromwell, in another Holbein miniature. Around 1537, this was uh, painted by Holbein. It, well, it has a fellow, uh, they're not to the same scale. This is Thomas Cromwell, looking not nearly as cross as in that 1532 portrait, uh, looking much more the proud father. What's he proud of in 1537? Marriage. The marriage of his son to this lady. Yet another Holbein portrait, now in Toledo. What a face that is. This is the lady who came to the marriage uh, to young Gregory. She was about 19, he was about 17. As Lady Uhtred, she was a widow. She'd already had two children by 19, by Sir Henry Utred. Now she would be a Mistress Cromwell to lady, lady Cromwell later on. And after her second husband's death, she would go on to marry the son of the Marquess of Winchester. She became Lady Paulette in the 1560s. A formidable lady, and Holbein gets that very well. And it comes out of the, the manuscript. She, she was a match for her father-in-law. Uh, he, I think he probably respected her. Um, too young for him to marry, but not for Gregory. And you'll notice her maiden name and Jeff has already alluded to this Seymour. This is Jane Seymour's sister. This is the sister of the Queen of England in 1536. So Thomas Cromwell has married his son to the king's sister-in-law. And in an informal sense, very informal, that meant that Thomas Cromwell was now the king's uncle. Now just imagine where Thomas Howard the Duke of Norfolk is now. <laughs> And if you want any explanation of why Thomas Cromwell fell in 1540, that would do. That peers of the realm like Norfolk, not all peers of the realm, but uh, the, the circle who, uh, around Norfolk and all those who wished to uh, be chief minister in the realm were by now just not just frustrated but frightened. What would this mean, this axis of Seymour and Cromwell and Tudor? How would that go? So they're just waiting for anything, anything, any way in to destroy the king's relationship with Cromwell. And it came, thanks to Thomas Cromwell himself, another marriage. Marriage number four. Jane Seymour, alas, died. And the king, grief-stricken, genuinely grief-stricken, did want another wife. He want, he'd already got an heir, but he wanted a spare. Now, who would he marry? Well, now, this was really, really important to Thomas Cromwell, who now had his his ideal team. He'd got Mary Tudor, he'd got the Seymours, got the king. And one thing he must not have would be the daughter of another English nobleman, another Anne Boleyn. That meant, logically, a foreign princess. And the king also felt inclined in that direction. But what foreign princess? There were not actually that many foreign princesses who wanted to be Mrs Henry VIII. (laughs) They went down the Almanach de Gotha bit by bit, until they got really scraping that barrel, the, the Duchy of Claves Jülichberg, which is in West Germany. And there were two, two young ladies there, and one of them was called Anna, and so Thomas Cromwell set this up, right at last, exactly what I want. Foreign princess, uh, the right sort of religion, not actually broken with Rome, but very independent of Rome, uh, reforming it in uh, their, their outlook on the church, So Anne came. To cut a long story short, Henry VIII took a peek at her from an upper window in Rochester High Street and instantly loathed her. This is really mysterious because no one else saw her as ugly or in any way repellent. Uh, Everyone up to then, all the people who brought her, all the diplomats who brought her over, said, oh, she's she's fine, she's fine. A bit dull, but, you know, it's all right. Uh, From that moment on, disaster because the king could not get out of the marriage all the paperwork had been done so meticulously there was no escape clause and over the next few months the only thing he could think of would be to apply the only possible way of annulling the marriage in other words declaring it had never happened his own impotence with her he could not perform the act. And the King of England, Henry VIII, had to stand before a panel of face clergy and tell them that he'd been impotent with the Queen. Can you imagine the humiliation, the shame, and the fury with the man who had contrived this, got him in that position? And in such a mood, his ears would suddenly be open. To the constant white noise which had been directed at them by Cromwell's enemies. Suddenly he would switch the mic on and hear it and would run with it. And so Thomas Cromwell fell. Nothing more to say except thank you.
0: This podcast is copyright for the National Archives, all rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.